Well, today we are in the last parable of this series. I'm a little sad. All these parables have been part of Matthew 13. And today we come to the last one. It's called the parable of the net and fish. It's one of the only ones that doesn't take place in a field. And I don't know about you, but I have loved the way that these really ordinary things, bread making and weeding and tending to a field, that Jesus has been intending to teach us really important things. And that's definitely how it is today in the parable of the net and the fish. And one of the things that I was reminded of as I went back to the beginning of Matthew 13 is that he taught all of these parables in one sitting in a boat uh, just pushed off to shore. It says that in Matthew 13 at the very beginning that the crowds had become so big that Jesus pushed out to shore, sat in a boat, and was speaking to them. And I can just imagine as he's teaching this last parable about a net and fish, that as he's sitting in that boat, he actually picks up the nets that are sitting next to him in the boat, and he points to the basket of fish that are on the shore. And he wants so much to communicate with us and to share these things that are important for us to know, that he would use anything, the very things around him, to teach us. And I love that about Jesus. So we're talking about nets, and it reminded me of this story that happened in our family's life. And we were visiting some friends on the East Coast, and they use something called a seine net or a drag net. And it's an ancient net, and it's one of the most common ways that fishermen, even in biblical times, would fish on the Sea of Galilee. So the, the disciples and all of them. So our friends have this net, and they use it just for sport and fun. So here's a picture of my three kids, their four kids on the beach, and off to the right there, you can see the two girls, they have this net. We're going to zoom in so you can see a little better. But it's this net that has like floats on the top and weights on the bottom. And the way that this net would work, that's Lucy on the right, is that she would walk, this is the ocean, but they would do this Sea of Galilee, it's almost as big. Uh, she would walk straight in, uh, perpendicular to the shore, and then cut across, and Olivia would follow her. So they would have the net stretched out about up to their armpits in water. Does that make sense? And then they would walk, and anything that would fill the net would be caught in the net. So these little girls, I'm watching them, and you know, as the waves are coming in, they're having to walk against the waves, and then they cut across really almost up to their necks. And then as they're coming back, they're having to fight the waves as they're going out. And the first day that we were visiting with this family, I was just sitting on the beach, just delighting in them. You can see them here. They're like talking, like, how are we going to do this? They're making their plan. And I just kind of sat back and watched. And um, so it was like the second or third time they had gone out, first day. And um, I noticed that as they're kind of fighting the waves and as they're coming back in, that it's up to their armpit, up to their waist, up to their knees. And when it was like in between knee and waist, I could make out these two dark gray, like big things, like thrashing in the net. And I just thought, no. (laughs) Not in this shallow water. Not in this warm water. Not where their feet were. No, no, no. And yes, there was a shark in that little net and this huge flapping stingray with this long bar between those two little girls in that net. And this little disciple net. And I remember just them coming back in and um, all seven kids just gathered around and it is like a legit shark, like teeth. It was like this big, fat, not one of those like bottom skinny dwellers that had no teeth. It was legit. I did not go in the water the whole week, the whole week. It ruined my vacation. 
But um, so all the kids gathered around, we examined, of course, and then we threw that shark, the dads threw the shark and the stingray back into the water, and they saved these little silver fish in their buckets on the shore. But I just thought, where there are baby sharks, there are mama sharks and daddy sharks. I don't want any of that. But these kids, they were totally undeterred. They got stung by jellyfish, and one of them even got like, cut by a stingray every day, over and over and over again. And I tell you that story because there's actually something very much uh, in line with the passage that we're going to look at today as we think about nets and net fishing. Jesus wants to use this imagery, really, to teach us about something really serious. So we're going to actually look at our passage and then pray this morning. But something I'll just tell you as we read it, one of the things that was common for fishermen in this day is that um, what they would do is they would bring their net, either if they were out on a boat or one of these ways that they would gather it up, And one of the first things that they would do is they would sort the fish. So any fish that didn't have fins or scales, uh, eels, catfish, anything like that, they would first, they would sort that out. They would toss that to the side. And then they would separate the good fish, and they would keep those, and they would clean them, and they would sell them. And that is the way that it went for fishing. So Jesus knows. He's sitting in a boat. He's looking at the nets right here. He says, you do this every day. You gather in the fish. You sort the good from the bad. And this is what he says. Once again, his last parable, he says to them, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. So what they do every day, Jesus says, this is what it will be like in the kingdom of heaven. He says this, This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. Well, let's pray. Oh Lord, this is a hard text And clearly you want us to understand these things, to be prepared, to be warned, to be saved for your kingdom. God, we thank you that you love us enough to lay it out there so directly, to use these things of everyday life to make the mystery of your kingdom clear to us. And God, I believe this is not only for our sake, those of us who are in this room, but for the sake of those we love and for the sake of the world. So, Lord, would you help us to have ears to hear this word of grace and truth and faith to respond to you. In Christ's name, amen. So, I have cried about this passage this week and about preaching it. It's a solemn warning about the end of the age. Jesus, for the second time in this chapter, and from this teaching, this one setting of teaching in the boat, is telling his listeners that there will be an end to this age. And with it, there will be a separation of the good and the bad, the righteous and the wicked. Just like the good and the bad fish, or as he taught previously, the wheat and the weeds, the good and the righteous will be collected for the kingdom of heaven. But the wicked and the bad will be cast into hell. Now, we certainly don't know everything about the end of the age and how judgment will occur, but Jesus is telling us what he wants us to know. 
that every single life matters, that every single person will face judgment. You know, one of the most helpful things about this series for me was when Eric preached on the wheat and the weeds. It's a very similar teaching to this passage. But one of the things that he said is how we hear Jesus' tone and the tone that he invites us to talk about when we think about the end of the age and the last judgment is really significant. And what he said is this is not an angry word. This is not a word of angry triumph. This is Jesus seeking to be as clear as he can so that we do not miss what he wants us to know. This is actually a word because he loves us so much, because he wants so much for us to be with him in this life and in the next. He's seeking to be clear and loving and gracious to communicate with us. And we see this uh, various times in the Bible. So I have really scoured Scripture and uh, just been looking, learning. What does the whole of Scripture say about Judgment Day, about the end of the age? So here are just a few places. I don't know, for those of you who are reading, Friday's reading on First and Second Thessalonians had a lot in there. That might be one that you go back to from April 5th. But when Paul was speaking to the people of Athens, he said this, <clears throat> For he, God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. That's Jesus. And Paul in 2 Corinthians, again, seeking to be really clear, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for us, the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And then Jesus himself says, If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. So even just in these three passages, you hear some common themes. Everyone, every single person, judged, will face judgment it will be in Christ, and it will be on the last day. And I don't know about you, but one of the questions that this raises for me is, who is good enough? Who is a good fish that would get put in that basket? Romans says no one is righteous, not even one. So who are the good fish, and who are the sharks and the stingrays? How do you know? So as theologians kind of wade into this passage, one of the things that they acknowledge is that the present-day kingdom on earth, like the net, contains all kinds of people. Disciples, people who follow Jesus, and those who don't. Like Carl said last week, those who are all in in following Christ, and those who are merely religious and haven't actually surrendered their lives to Jesus as Lord. But the distinction here is that the future kingdom of heaven will only have people of righteousness. And that is unsettling when you hear it that directly. That basically, just because I'm in the net, part of the church gathered, a pastor of the church, it doesn't mean that in the end, when everyone stands before Christ, that I would be in the good basket in the kingdom of heaven. That's actually, being in the net isn't what is most important. It's righteousness. But again, who of us is righteous? 
Who of us is good enough? Now, I think there are at least two ways, probably more than this, uh, ways that we could go wrong with this parable. So here's one. In fear, we could strive and strive, trying in vain to make ourselves good enough, really exhaust ourselves, and be so fixed on hell and fear that we miss the life God has for us here and in eternity. It's what we would call works righteousness. And another way to go wrong, kind of on the other extreme, would be to decide that if we can never be good enough for God's kingdom on our own, then let's just pretend we didn't actually hear these words from Jesus about his clarity about heaven and hell. Or maybe we don't even like the idea, and so we would just like decide, I'm just going to live for myself here now, not worry about any consequences here or in eternity. And those are actually pretty common responses to things that are this clear. But what Jesus has for us is neither of those. And it's so much better, and it's so good. It's the good news. It's actually the best news. So I want to seek to be as clear as I can about what that is. And here it is. It's true that only God is righteous. But because God so loved the world, even while we were still sinners, even in our unrighteousness separated from God, God sent Jesus, God in flesh, fully God and fully man. And he, Jesus, lived among us on earth, showing us the way of life. And even though he was the only righteous one, he willingly gave up that righteous life. And he suffered and paid the penalty for our unrighteousness, for our sin. And he did that by living a righteous life and dying on the the cross and then defeating death and rising again to new life so that we could be spared from hell and so that we could be restored to a place of righteousness before God. And actually, Jesus' righteousness his place of righteousness before God, that is what he gives to us who are in Christ so that we can live at peace with God in this life and forever. That is the good news. And on top of that, he gives us the Holy Spirit who lives in us and actually gives us righteousness that we might live in it and empowers us to live a life of righteousness. That is amazing grace. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is a grace. We are saved by grace, by faith in Jesus Christ, period. And faith in Christ, faith in Christ leads to a life of discipleship that is marked by righteousness. Not perfectly, but growing. That the righteousness of Christ would be alive in us and growing in us. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. And it's not righteousness that we're seeking to earn a way into the kingdom of heaven or a spot in the good basket, but in order to be faithful to the one who has saved us for this life and for the next. It's a way that we express our love and devotion to the one who has taken our place and given us his righteousness. That is what Jesus intends for us, both the good news of the gospel and that we would live in the righteousness of Christ. As I've wrestled through this passage this week, 
I've been helped by this reflection from Dale Bruner, and it's actually a quote on the front of your bulletin. And um, so if you want to look at that, it's also on the screens. But he writes this. The first half of discipleship, as the first half of the Beatitudes, that's in Matthew 5, taught. The first half of discipleship means to go down on our knees and confess our poverty both in spirit and in righteousness, where we recognize we are not righteous on our own. But the second half of discipleship and of the Beatitudes, which is sometimes neglected in our church from a fear of works righteousness, is to get to our feet and to seek to keep Jesus' commands. It's not enough over here to merely say that we're nothing, that we have no righteousness. We must also seek to be Christians. I love that. Be a Christian. Get on your feet, Christian, and do this life with Jesus. That is the invitation. And I think so often we're prone to think about this cost of discipleship, this heavy burden, and that to to follow Jesus means it is, there is a cost, that we would die to self, that we would pick up our cross. But I've been so helped by people who remind me that life as a follower of Jesus is the best way It's actually the easy yoke. It's the good life. When God himself dwells in us and we have the peace and the power available to us in Christ, there is nothing that compares. We sang that this morning. Nothing that compares to living in Christ, even just if it was for this life. And I think when we've tasted that goodness and the companionship and keeping company with Jesus— the cost of non-discipleship, the cost of not living with Jesus is what feels so overwhelmingly burdensome and toilsome and sad. And what Jesus is saying here is it also leads to hell. Jesus wants abundant life for us here and in his eternal kingdom of heaven. So I think one of the things that I've been thinking about, so If this is true, like we want to be the good fish. We want to be the righteous ones that are collected, that are part of the kingdom of heaven. And so what does that kind of life look like? I'm reading this book called Real Life Discipleship. And one of the things that I love about this book is he said, to understand what that means, that life of righteousness, that life of discipleship, he says, the definition of discipleship can be found in the invitation to discipleship. The definition of discipleship can be found in this invitation to discipleship. And the invitation that he's talking about actually takes place on a boat with nets. And it's Jesus' first call of his disciples. And it says they're actually in the middle of throwing out their nets for a catch on the Sea of Galilee. This same exact setting. So Peter and John, they're throwing out their nets. And Jesus says to them, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And that really is the original call to discipleship. Come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And I love the clarity about this invitation for us as Jesus' disciples. And I love they've kind of broken it down in this way. They said this word, follow me, that a disciple knows and follows Christ. That to be someone who lives in the righteousness of Christ means that we have to know Jesus, that we get to know him through his word, through the fellowship of other believers. It's a word of relationship, not a word of religion. 
know the one who we follow. And then it's also a word of surrender. To be one who follows Christ means that he leads and we follow. That we surrender our life to his. I obey, I stay near. It's not just knowing that I'm in the good basket and save for that. Actually, to follow Jesus means that our Savior must also be our Lord and our leader. So a disciple knows and follows Christ, but a disciple is also being changed by Christ. Jesus says, I will make you. It's these words of change. That growing in righteousness and the fruit of the Spirit, said, Jesus said, we will know a tree by its fruit. And again, it's not perfect fruit, but it's fruit that's growing that is a blessing to those who receive it. That if we are in Christ, if we are in the righteousness of Christ, there will be evidence that we are being changed, that the righteousness of Christ is growing in our lives. Are you being changed? Do you see evidence of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control? Those are the fruit of the Spirit that gets grown in us when we are in Christ. So a disciple is one who knows and follows Christ. A disciple is one who's being changed by Christ. And then a disciple is one who's committed to the mission of Christ. Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. So as these guys are tossing out their nets to catch fish, he says, come, you're going to fish for people. You're going to be part of my mission in the world, the most important thing. There will come a day when every single person will face the judgment I want you to be part of telling them the good news, that their life matters, that I love them, that I have eternal blessing for them. Am I committed to the mission of Christ that people would know the good news of the gospel? So as we think about what it means to be good fish, to be righteous, We remember that it's only in Christ, that it is by grace that we've been saved, but there is this invitation to actually live into that righteousness for the life of Christ to grow in us, that we would follow, that we actually would be marked with the righteousness of his life in us. So as we come to this table this morning, I want to encourage you to think about this call to discipleship. Maybe you're in a place where you haven't actually thought about yourself or you know yourself to be in the net, but you've never actually said, Jesus, I want to know you more. I want to follow in your life. Jesus says, come, get to know me and follow me. Maybe you're in a place where you realize, yeah, I have known a lot about Christ, but I haven't actually invited him in to change me. Surrendered that his life of righteousness would take over. It's the best. And maybe as you examine your life as we come to the table, to think about, is my life, the way that I spend my time and my resources and the gifts that God has given to me, my money, as I look at all those things, am I on mission with Christ that other people would know the gospel? Am I a fisher of people that they would be welcomed in to the goodness of God? And this table reminds us how significant the cost was for Jesus 
for us to be saved, for us to be given this new life. This table reminds us of his sacrifice, that he came and he lived a righteous life and then went to the cross so that we wouldn't have to.